0: This is Power for Living, the Bible teaching ministry of Christ the King Church in Wakefield, Massachusetts. I'm your host Feliciano Segundo and our teacher is Father Michael Carl. So get all your Bibles and let's get started.
1: We are reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. But not and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and then lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. This is the gospel of our Lord. Today for our teaching time, we're going to go back over the Hebrews passage. Hebrews 12, 18 to 29 we should start out first by reminding ourselves of what Paul was discussing in verses 18 through 29 and it has to do with Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. It featured strong exhortations for us to run the race of faith, keeping our eyes on Jesus. In today's passage the author returns to his strategy of comparing the old and new covenants. And so we're supposed to be reminded by this that we're not supposed to be like Esau. Remember Esau, right? The guy that sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. So we're not to be like him because Esau was termed to be immoral. Because he he was willing to deny his birthright. Now, in the Old Testament times, the birthright was significant because if we all remember from some part of history way back when, the oldest son was the one who got the biggest share of the inheritance. But Esau, he was hungry enough to wear Ah, What is that to me? I don't need that. And so he ate the stew and took off. And as a result, he des- despised his birthright, as Scripture says. And then later he sought it with tears. In verse uh, 18, we have reminders of God's Holiness. We believe that God's holy, right? And so we're told that you have not come where the thing may be touched in a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest because this reminds us of the time when the Israelites were at the foot of Mount Sinai. If you remember the story, when God appeared at Sinai on the top of the mountain was red with fire and smoke and he thundered out his voice voice was just booming anyway, then they heard trumpets and the people were all frightened and scared. And it says here in verse 19, in the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And we need to remember that stone does not mean the modern day definition of that word. It refers to being thrown, having rocks thrown at you until you died. So nobody was supposed to touch that mountain because God was there and it was holy. And that is pretty intense if you think about it. It was indeed so terrifying that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now Moses was the guy who met with God face to face. And he went up on the mountain and was in God's presence for 40 days. But he said he was even trembling with fear at that time. And in one of the table talk devotionals from a few years ago, it said, What we might miss if we are not careful, however, is that the people witnessed more than the natural phenomena that attended the Lord's meeting with Moses in Israel. Along with such things, the people actually heard the voice of God as He gave the Ten Commandments. Moses says this explicitly in Deuteronomy 4:11 through12, and it is implicit in Exodus 20, verse 19. The divine voice we see in verses 18 and 19 inspired terror in the hearers and among the Israelites. This does not surprise us. Scripture routinely describes the voice of God as being deafening in its loudness and destructive in its power. So what does all of this mean? Does it mean that even today we're supposed to be trembling at the thought that God is near? No. What it does mean is that we need to approach God humbly and not go up there like you're meeting a friend on the street corner and saying, yo, buddy, how are you? You know, give me five and all that. You don't do that with God. You approach Him humbly Realizing who he is and who we are. And that was reflected in how Moses responded to everything there. He was even afraid. And this was the dude that was called a friend of God too. Now it says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What we're seeing here is that God was leading them to something better than the mountain, better than the tabernacle. God is leading them into his very presence And he's actually giving, say, like a foretaste of the eventual glory of the heavenly city. He's talking about Zion here, not Mount Sinai. We know that Mount Zion frequently is referred to in in the Bible as the holy city. God's presence where there is peace and there is tranquility and there is ultimate stability. And the author is making it clear that the Mount Zion of which he speaks is not the earthly Jerusalem either, or its temple. But the heavenly Jerusalem, this would be the Jerusalem we read about in Revelation 21. Now, the Father is referred to as the judge of all. This is not the designation we might expect, and yet it makes perfect sense. The revelation of God at Mount Sinai hided Highlighted his holiness, which prompted the Israelites to shrink back in fear. At Mount Zion, God is present as well, and with some of the same evidences of his holiness. Yet, when we get there, we don't have to shrink away in fear. Why is this? It's because the Father's wrath has been satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ. So we no longer have to fear ending up in God's presence. Now in verse 25, we, we read that see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. In other words, don't disobey and don't ignore God. When God is speaking to you, give him your undivided attention. I think if I saw a vision of a heavenly angel or something like that, I would probably give it my entire attention too. You know, how would you react if you saw Gabriel standing before you saying, I have a message for you? Would that get your attention? I hope so. So, or if you saw a burning bush, would that get your attention? Especially if it wasn't being burned up, but there was a flame in it. say, whoa, what's happening here? You know, we need to make sure that we do not Neglect and ignore God. And verse 26 again is speaking of the end times. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And in verse 27, yet once more indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What this means is that the things that we are going to receive from God in our eternal life can't be shaken. Can't be upset. It can't be messed with. It's going to be perfect and it's going to be there with us forever. Now, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Charles Spurgeon said about this particular verse, Glory be to God. Our kingdom cannot be moved. Not even dynamite can touch our dominion. No power in the world and no power in hell can shake the kingdom which the Lord has given to his saints. With Jesus as our monarch, we fear no revolution and no anarchy. For the Lord hath established this kingdom upon a rock and it cannot be moved or more or removed. Does that give us a hope for the future of our time in heaven? That we're going to get a reward that is so wonderful and so gracious and so beautiful and so stable that it can never be taken away. And that we would live in the presence of the Lord forever. Now. The last verse, a good way to end that paragraph, I think, for it says, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, that might put fear in some of us, but let's look at this two ways. It's appealing to the Israelites to obey God. Moses warned that your God is a devouring fire, a jealous God. Now, the author of Hebrews issues the same warning, changing your to our he warns that the creator God and the loving God will also be a consuming fire for those who disobey him. So our God is a consuming fire, but that's going to, that particular part of the fire is going to be for the, for the ones who are not regenerated or saved or the ungodly ones. There is another way that our God is a consuming fire. And that's the kind of fire that, we t- that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 3. And in all of those stories where you hear about somebody going to a goldsmith or a silversmith shop and putting the metal to the fire, what does it do? It burns off all of the impurities. And when we go through times of testing and when we go through difficult situations, that's our God being the consuming fire. How How do we know this? Because there's something inside of us that he wants to work with. There's something inside of us that he wants to fix. And he wants to burn off the impurities and change our perspective on life in general. He wants to change our focus. He wants us to be focused on him. And he wants to get rid of or burn up everything that stands between us and God. In other words, he's trying to purify us. So our God is a consuming fire in that way too. Yes, there is judgment for the ungodly. But here the consuming fire means the pure... For those who are saved, the purifying fire. The this, this stuff that's going to burn off the impurities. So when we have a test or a trial, the thing to do is not say, God, what are you trying to do to me? We need to ask God, God, what are you trying to work inside of me so that I can be more like you or that I can be more like Jesus? That's the right question to ask at that moment when we go through a time of testing. Or he's just trying to get us to learn to trust him more through the difficult times. So that's how he is a consuming fire for those who belong to him. Amen. Thank you so
0: much for joining us for this week's edition of Powerful Living. If you happen to miss any of our other programs, be sure to go to our podcast page at christthekingnorthshore.podbean.com. And you can also visit our website at www.ctknorthshore.org. If this program has been a blessing, feel free to let us know. Write us at Power for Living, care of Christ the King Church, 4 Railroad Avenue, Suite 309 in Wakefield, Massachusetts, 01880. Or you can also send us an email at christthekingnorthshore@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can be a part of this gospel ministry by becoming a patron of Power for Living. You can find out how by clicking the Become a Patron button at the top of our podcast page. That's it for this week, and until next time, remember that Jesus is your Power for Living.